You're listening to episode 31 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. I'm Tara, he's Alex, and the Cardinals are back. Or are they? Hey, everybody. Welcome to a much more cheery edition of Chirps this week after a great weekend for the St. Louis Cardinals, welcoming the Chicago Cubs to town with uh, with their brooms in hand. I'm Tara Wellman, as always, along with Alex Crisofoli. And uh, Alex, these Cardinals over the last weekend have looked so different than the Cardinals of the last month. Is it really as simple as closing the book on May and starting over in June? I can't imagine that it is. (laughs) Um, You know, we go to Chicago this weekend, so it could all be for naught if we just lay a giant egg there. And we're back where we started a week from now, uh, having the same conversation we were having a week ago. That said, you could not have asked for uh, a better weekend uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, First off, I... uh, I was actually out of town in Pittsburgh for a for a wedding. Uh, my cousin got married, um, but I got back on I guess Saturday. Well, no, so Saturday I went to the Pirates game. You know that Pirates Brewers game that went forever. At yes. PNC? Yeah, I was at that game. Oh, um, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, and then I got back to my hotel, and the Cardinals game was in a rain delay. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, I watched a little bit of it, and then it went to rain delay, and I found out the best way to watch a game like that, which is to go to bed at a reasonable hour and then wake up the next morning and find out that the Cardinals had won. Um, <laughs> and, and that's what I did. Uh, that's what I did that night. That's what I might do tonight since this game just started. Um, and Cardinals are up one nothing, by the way, in the bottom of the first. But no, it was a great series. Um, so you had a walk-off win, which was their first walk-off win of the year. And, you know, whatever, walk-off wins are random, but they're fun and... I don't know. It just seemed like the Cardinals needed something like that to rally around. But you also had two one-run wins. Uh, I believe entering the the series, the Cardinals were something like five and ten or five and eleven in one-run games. And you know, those are you know, you want to be near at least five hundred in that stat because if you're not, then it just feels like kind of a what if, like you know, did the did the Cardinals blow games that they could have won? You know, how could things be different had they won uh, just a few more of those games? But also, they won two games when scoring three runs or fewer. In fact, if I recall, if I had the scores down correctly, when they won, when they scored two runs or fewer, right? Was it two, mm-hmm. two, two to one games? Yeah. Um, yep. And, you know, you heard me last week screaming about how the Cardinals had like a one and 18 record when scoring three runs. Three runs or fewer, so so that was a nice development as well. It was just a great weekend, and, th- and that was the Cubs. Um, and, you know, I think I said last week, like, you know, I, I feel good about this series, or at least it gives them an opportunity to to make a statement with the Cubs coming to town um, and to kind of rectify what happened in May. You know, they easily could have left the weekend down 7.5 to the Cubs. Yeah. Or or if they lost two or three down five and a half. And man, that's a world of difference to where they sit right now. Yeah. And it's not maybe that shocking. I know we talked about it early. Well, right after the, the Cubs sweep in Chicago that they this Cardinals team looked real bad against the Brewers in Milwaukee for a couple of series. And then Milwaukee came to St. Louis and it was a whole different story. So 
I, I'm not that shocked that it happened, but I am not going to sit here and say that I expected it after what they did in the rest of the month of May. But my question, Alex, is does this actually tell us anything about this team? Because we talked last week about how many different things were going wrong. And yes, it's great that they they finally got a walk-off. It's great that they were able to come back after the rain delay and still win. It's great that they won two games scoring three runs or less. All those things are great. But, I mean, <laughs> I don't think you can expect eight innings of shutout baseball from Adam Wainwright every five days. Um, and I don't know that we want to, to try for that. <laughs> every five days. So, you know, there are things that happened in the series that aren't necessarily things you can depend on. So when I'm looking back at the series, how much of the actual play was different than what we saw in May? Or is it just, you know, one of those weird baseball things where they weren't really that different? They just got a break that they hadn't gotten the month of May prior to that. Is that is that a fair question to ask at this point? No, it's totally fair because it felt like finally a few breaks fell the Cardinals way and the Cubs. I mean, it's not like they, they scored eight runs a game, three games in a row and shut it down and and all the starters went. So like the issues we've been talking about didn't necessarily go away. They just got away with them. Exactly. Exactly. Like Cubs easily could have won two of those games and, you know, talking about, uh, the the issues not going away. They just got away with it. I mean, Schilt is the biggest, uh, I think example of that with what he pulled on Sunday um, when we were all, I, I feel like uh, I, Cardinals fans finally came together as one to scream at Mike Schilt, what on earth is happening? And that he got away with that, man, that seemed to be breaking so poorly. I felt like I had, I felt like I knew what was going to happen before it happened. And what I thought was going to happen was not Wong saving Schilt's butt, but that <laughs> Rizzo was going to hit a double down the line or something like that. And real quick, I want to mention something. And, you know, I haven't been beating this drum much at all because other people have been doing it plenty loud and better than I have. But the the camera angle, right, for Fox Sports Midwest, right. if you rewatch that at bat by Rizzo, uh, which I have about 12 times now, 12, 15 times, because it's it's great. You can't even see the ball going off his bat. Have you yeah. noticed that? Be- because of the camera angle. And so live, I remember, you know, in that split second being like, okay, what is that? Is that a foul ball? Is that a fair? Is it, you know, are the Cubs about to score here? Um, you, you really didn't know, at least I didn't, and I haven't been able to discern much more on replay, what was going to become of that ball. That said, defense matters you know I, I don't I can't think of many other second basemen who make that play even with the uh, good positioning they had Wong in for that at bat because you know if he's playing his his position you know in the normal spot he's probably not able to make that play but man that was such a great play by Colton Wong. It's one of those things where I'm so thrilled with that moment but I'm also terrified that that is going to justify a really bad process <laughs> of decision making as we go along. We talked about that a lot with Mike Matheny and look, I don't know that there I've run across too many people who have been more insistent that Adam Wainwright still has something left than I have been, but man was that it just seemed like such an unnecessary well, risk to me. And it worked out and it was cool. And man, that that play by Colton was awesome. The reaction by Wayno was great. The comments from everyone after the game, 
it really feels like that was a moment that they can build on. But I don't know how many times you can take that risk and have it work out as beautifully as it did in that moment. Yeah, so a, a couple of things. One, I, I was on record as saying, if Wainwright can pitch a no-hitter, leave him in there forever. Uh, uh, and, I, and I stand by that just because <laughs> I, I love moments like that. One of my favorite yeah. baseball games of all time is when Dwight Gooden threw a no-hitter for the Yankees when he was very, very washed up. I want to say this was like in 1996 or something like that. Um, I like seeing guys past their prime, kind of like the, you know, for love of the game type type moments, ha- have those type of moments, even if it's not the best idea for perhaps the foreseeable future. That said, once he gave up that hit, I was like, okay, you, you can get him out now. And, yeah. and, and what I kept seeing in the post game, which I thought was kind of weird, was Wainwright was saying like, you know, it means so much to me to know that he had confidence he had my back to go out there to, to send me back out there for those later innings um and, and believe me i don't think that's a trivial thing but i'll also say had Schilt taken him out after the sixth or had Schilt taken him out after the seventh not a single person would have thought or said wow Schilt does not have any confidence in wainwright right now no like yeah. that clearly would have been nothing but a great start by Wainwright. He did exactly the job we need him to do, which is six or seven strong innings. Shutout ball. Yeah, he walked a lot of guys. He got lucky on a few plays. So what? That happens every day. Um but n- no one would have looked at that weird had Schilt gone out there and gotten him and thought like, "Oh, wow, like short hook by Schilt there." Like, no, not at <laughs> all. So like the the idea and maybe I'm maybe I'm exaggerating or exaggerating or misreading, mishearing, I guess, what Wainwright was saying. But yeah, the idea that it showed how much confidence he had in them, in, in him to send him out for the eighth, I think is, I don't know, it, it seemed more just like what everyone else is saying, a bad, bad idea. I'm happy we got away with it. Uh, it made it all that win all that much better that we got away with that. But yeah, I don't need to see that again, at least not in the near future. What I took away from those comments because I noticed that as well was how much it seemed like Adam Wainwright needed the confidence boost, which is bizarre because he's nothing if not confident to a fault that not only is he capable, but he's going to perform every time he goes out there. It felt like hearing him talk revealed how maybe rattled he's been by his own inconsistencies And I mean, he talked about Jack Flaherty basically giving him a pep talk Mm -hmm. and saying like, hey, don't worry about it. We know you still got good stuff. Don't you're you're not just the old guy. You can still play like since when does Adam Wainwright need a pep talk from Jack Flaherty? That's what I can't get over. So I guess I mean, if if, you know, this is like super rose colored glasses thinking that Mike Schilt is this, you know, galaxy brain baseball guy if he knew that that's where Adam Wainwright was struggling and saw an opportunity to generate that confidence boost for him, I mean, (laughs) I guess more power to him. I still think he got incredibly lucky with that risk, but I mean, that's the only piece of this that I can, that I can look at from the outside and say, man, like Adam Wainwright didn't need that eighth inning. The Cardinals didn't need that eighth inning from Adam Wainwright, unless there's this moment where Mike Schilt realized this could be that hurdle for Wayno to get him past the sort of insecurities of can I or can't I, do I deserve this spot or don't I? 
And if that's the case, and if that happens, then I I will <laughs> gladly give Mike Schultz props for it. But I just don't know how often you can manage for the creation of a moment that gives that confidence boost as opposed to managing in the moment of the game that you absolutely have to win. And that's where it felt like he was too far across the line in one direction that I I wasn't super comfortable with. Again, I'm thrilled that it happened. And I guess because of the result, I can look at it and say, I really loved that moment. (laughs) But when I think about it more, Oh man, there's there are so many reasons that should not have worked out the way that it did. Well, well let's say that's what Schultz was doing. That he was kind of part of that was look, I'm going to try and build Wainwright back up, or you know, as high as I possibly can. Obviously, that's not all, but he certainly believed he still had decent stuff. And you know, right. to his credit, he, I mean, <laughs> it, it wasn't exactly like a 97 mile per hour fastball or anything like that. But he struck out Chris Bryant with a with a high fastball and he had a decent inside pitch there to Bryant. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry to Rizzo who, who turned on it and got, you know, pretty good hit on it, but let's say that's what Schilt was doing. Well, then it's even riskier because he was basically yeah. setting him up to fail, um, shattering perhaps whatever confidence he had, he had built up through the right. first seven innings. Uh, so if that was part of the equation, then man, I'm even happier we got away with it because <laughs> it, it just would have taken the whole wind out of out of the sails of that weekend had yeah. they lost that game. Yeah, especially even after though the they won the series that Wainwright had. Yeah, yeah. Um, so immediately following that, though, came the opportunity for Jordan Hicks to close out that game, which he did not do. Evidently, pitching on Sunday nights, <laughs> it's not a good thing for Jordan Hicks because just a week prior, he'd blown the save on uh, Sunday night baseball um, in Atlanta. So Jordan Hicks comes in, immediately gets into trouble, and then Mike Schilt immediately goes and pulls him from the game, which was a bit of a shift from what we've seen from him with Jordan Hicks in the past. Now, he got a little defensive after the game when he was asked about the rough couple of outings that, that Jordan has had, because there were in between a couple of clean innings as well. But the question I think is fair as far as what Jordan Hicks can be expected to do. And if the Cardinals are utilizing him in a way that is the most effective right now, because if he can't be that guy in the ninth, at least not right now, there's some questions then for, for what this bullpen looks like. Yeah, he's a tough one. Those that was not a good outing. Those sliders he was throwing weren't even close. Um, like I, I couldn't even imagine them. Uh, some of those inducing a you know swing on the batters. It, it's tough to say only because he was used in May so sporadically. I, I don't know if he never, if if he ever quite had an opportunity to get in a groove. If that's even a thing. If that's something pitchers need to, especially when you're in the closer role, need to be able to do. I don't have the stats in front of me, but I know he pitched what, like probably like the fourth or fifth fewest innings for the reliever for for the Cardinals in the month of May? Seven and a third, I believe. Seven and a third innings in the month of May. Wow. It's not a lot. (laughs) No, no, it's not. Um, On the other hand, I don't think it's as easy as some people think it is just because if you use him in whether it's like a mop-up game or just – I don't know. You start to hear people saying like, you know, why are we using our young 22 year old fireballer like this? You know, look what happened to Segrist. Look what happened to Seth Manus. Look what happened to, 
uh, Matt Bowman. Not to necessarily compare those guys to someone who throws 104 miles per hour, but just the the worry of overuse. You, you know what I'm saying? So I, yeah. I, I don't know how you walk that line. I, I don't know how, how you can walk that line well. I do know it does seem like a bad idea to only pitch him uh, that many innings in a month. But I'm not positive I have the solution. Here's one thing I want to ask you, and tell me if this is one of the dumbest things you have ever heard. And if it is, we can edit it from this. <laughs> so, <laughs> Scratch that from yeah, the record. So it never happened. <laughs> I, I used to think about this with Trevor Rosenthal as well, only because, and this is very anecdotal, but I, I felt like with Trevor, who was, who was a great closer uh, for the most part, especially when he was on, he was almost as good as anyone in the league. But you felt like, at least I did, you knew pretty quickly whether or not it was going to be a good outing mm. from Rosenthal. And I always wondered, and I'm, I kind of had this thought pop in my head the last week and a half or so with Hicks with some of these, uh, these appearances, <laughs> how dumb would it be to have a guy already warmed up to come in? Uh, so like, you know, what I'm talking about like when, um, yeah. <laughs> like when you can tell immediately, just have them both ready. Yeah. Like when you can tell yeah. immediately Hicks, when you can tell immediately that Hicks doesn't have it, like after one batter, be like, okay, we will go to Brevia now, or we will go to whoever else we have warmed up and we don't have to watch Hicks labor through another batter or whatnot, or how many batters it might take to get someone ready. Uh, now, that might not do much for, we were talking about confidence earlier, that might yep. not do much for someone's confidence knowing like, hey, don't worry, if you only throw, if you throw a couple of balls, we're going to yank you immediately and put someone else in there. But man, I, I do remember feeling, uh, and again, this is very anecdotal, and I, I I, I don't want to act like I'm backing this up with any sort of like analysis, but I do remember thinking with Rosenthal, like, wow, we wasted several batters when it was clear he didn't have it, but what can you do when you don't have anyone up and ready to, to come in? Yeah, no, it's an interesting concept and one that I definitely thought of a number of times with Trevor Rosenthal as well. And I don't know that it's something it's because of that confidence issue, right? Because, you know, you don't want Mark Ellis hovering over the shoulder of Colton Wong. You don't want Brebbia hovering over the shoulder. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's that, it's that weird line where your guy's got to know he's the guy if he's going to have the confidence to go out there and throw his best stuff so that in the back of his mind, he isn't thinking, man, if I, if I walk this guy, I'm, I'm going to be done for the day. But at the same time, there's that weird managing for the team versus for the player concept where, you know, if if this is a team win, then it doesn't really matter if you end up not pitching the inning or not, if the guy behind you comes in and does his job. So there's there's a whole weird like psychological level <laughs> to this game and to the the confidence factor. But it is something that I think a lot of people would feel more comfortable with as they're watching a game if they know that there's an immediate alternate option. <laughs> I don't think it's that dumb of a question. I think that it's probably not something that's ever going to happen because of the the people and the mindsets involved. But it does sort of lend itself to this idea that whether it's Jordan Hicks or John Brebbia or how Carlos Martinez is used, you know, maybe some of these concrete roles and job descriptions and how those are carried out aren't actually the most effective. And, you know, I was having this conversation with Kyle Reese earlier today and I asked him, you know, what do you do with this kid right now? And 
you know, he was even saying that it's been a process for him to get to the point where he'd rather just use the best reliever in the high leverage situation and not try to put a label on it. But you can't do that without kind of fighting the tendency to lock someone into a role as well. So it's complicated in that I think Jordan Hicks needs to pitch more. I mean, his best stretches have come when he was out there regularly, but not excessively. And when he was able to kind of mix up his pitches and and use what was working that night, we haven't seen him really do that in the limited appearances so far. So I think Colin Gardner wrote a a piece over at the Cards Conclave about the closer by committee concept. And it was interesting because, you know, a lot of people kind of bristle at that idea, but his point was do it for now because right now Jordan Hicks in the ninth isn't the best use of the pitchers you have available. So move it around, put him in maybe a higher leverage situation, maybe an important inning somewhere else where it's not the ninth inning and then use some of those other guys you have available until you kind of feel more comfortable with slotting those guys into perhaps the more intended roles, but maybe not. I don't know. I think I think there's been a lot of talk about not defining roles that then have become pretty well defined as the season has gone along. And, and maybe the Cardinals, starting with Mike Schilt, need to get back to this idea that it doesn't have to be so specific to an inning for a guy to come into the game. Yeah, I, I think most of the baseball world has been screaming that, screaming about that for a <laughs> while, which is to have your best relief pitcher come in um, at the most in the most high leverage situation or in a very important situation, whether that be you know basically any time the starter leaves the game. Whether Hicks is the best reliever on staff, I, I think that sort of remains to be seen. I, I think. You know, with him, it just worries me. I get a little anxiety when we only have a one-run lead and he's coming out to close the game just because yeah. he's walking about 13.5% batters. Um, and, that, and that's just too much. And, you know, you really want a guy like him throwing strikes. I know he developed a few more weapons in the offseason um, to uh, to induce, uh, you know, some swings and misses. But I'm just happy when he's throwing strikes because he even last year when he wasn't striking out a lot of guys, he, he – he wasn't giving up a lot of hard contact either, you know, and he has a good defense behind him. Like right now he has, I think I looked earlier, he has a 60% ground ball rate, which is very good. So I I just want him pumping strikes back there. And if he's not, then man, I I just don't feel comfortable or as comfortable as I should with him on the mound, at least in a, in a tight game like that. Now, I think also to be fair, I should note that in, I, I don't know if it was Sunday's game. I think it was Sunday's game. He, he disposed of the first batter pretty quickly. Was that Sunday? Yeah. Okay. So for me to say like, oh, it was obvious he didn't have it right off the bat. That's probably not a fair thing to say. But um, I think it was like a first pitch fly ball to center field. Okay. So it's not like we got a good feel for what he was throwing okay. that day. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, um, I, I think it's also a little more pressure on him in that, you know, Andrew Miller still trying to kind of find his groove. Bullpens are tough. You kind of just almost have to let them happen. You, you yeah. know, if that makes sense. Uh and, but it can be kind of hard to do that when you have these designated roles, you, you know, heading into the season. So I would say he's probably our best option for a closer. But man, I just don't like seeing those walks. Yeah. It's interesting 
to see him mixing in other pitches this year because last year we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that I mean initially he threw a sinker like that's it <laughs> that's all he did mix in the slider every now and then and all of a sudden you have a very different profile for a pitcher this year we're seeing him use the change up a little bit mix in a curveball every now and then I'm wondering how much kind of figuring out the best ways for him to utilize that arsenal is part of the inconsistency at this point. Because keep in mind, I mean, this is a kid that if he'd followed the normal trajectory would have been figuring that out at double A this year, <laughs> not at the big league level. So it's a, a still a work in progress, I think, in learning him in learning how to utilize his skill set. And some of that's on, you know, Yadier Molina in how he calls an, an inning for Jordan Hicks and learning how to best do that as well, especially if, you know, the slider isn't quite at its best that day or or whatever the case may be. So I, I still think it's a, a enough of a learning process that him as the closer is going to cause a little bit of anxiety, even if that's a role he ends up being very dominant in down the road yeah and it's also worth noting that if we're going to dissect such small sample sizes here that we should also note that there have been a few times this season uh, i'm thinking back to i guess that early season against pittsburgh and I, I believe early april when his slider was just nasty when no one could touch it and yeah. it looked it looked basically unhittable so there's no reason why that won't be who Jordan Hicks is the very next time he's on the mound. It's just, you know, we're talking about single innings, a guy who throws 104 miles per hour. Um, <laughs> it's going to be, I think, interesting for him, I don't know, all season. Like, like he just doesn't seem like – he seems like a guy who – I hesitate to say this about a 22-year-old, but he just seems like a guy who's always going to keep it pretty interesting. Yeah, and and I don't know that that's the guy you want to be your closer, but maybe it is. Uh, also, the last thing I have to say about this is, can we just acknowledge that John Brebbia maybe deserves a little more credit? John Brebbia? Uh, and, and while we're on that, can I ask you, I, I know John Gant has been a starter before. He started games for the Cardinals, but can he pitch 90 innings out of the pen? <laughs> because he's basically <laughs> on pace to do that. And he's been great. He yeah. still has so... Ben Humphreys wrote on his blog um, on the Cardinals, I believe it's called, over a month ago how Gantt has a uh, 100% strand rate. He still has a 100% um, left on base uh, percentage. The, the idea when he wrote that was this can't last for very long, and it's, it's still going on. So that's something to keep an eye on. But he's just been great. He's striking out close to 30%, around 30% of batters. He's walking fewer batters, I've noticed lately. So the, the bullpen... Um, I don't know. Like, yeah, Brebbia has been awesome. And overall, I'm pretty satisfied with the bullpen. You know, it's a bullpen. There's there's things to worry about. There's things like that can go wrong at any moment. But we've certainly seen worse. Yeah. <laughs> Not no, that that's long That's for ago, sure. <laughs> no, John Gant has been a revelation. And it is interesting to me in this conversation about how uh, they need to not define roles for guys like Jordan Hicks or Carlos Martinez. John Gant just doesn't. Like, I don't know how you define the role that he's created for himself because he can pitch in any situation. He can pitch two innings if you need him to. He can close a game if you need him to. He is what Andrew Miller was a number of years ago when he sort of first created this super reliever category. John Gant has become that. And I don't know that any of us really saw that happening. Yeah, I wanna, I'm curious how many, how many innings pitched Andrew Miller did at his... Uh... 
hype out of the out of the pen. Okay, so in yeah. 2016, he threw 75 innings. So that's that's a lot. So yeah, I'm I'm just curious. So I looked on earlier and saw that Gant had already thrown over 30 innings, and I was just I was just shocked. Yeah, and I mean the thing the the thing working in his favor is that he has been a starter. So it's not like this is a new workload as far as the innings count. But it's certainly very different, and the the stress is very different. The back to back days thing is different. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I think the benefit of having Carlos Martinez in the bullpen is that he can Gosh, also, <laughs> in theory, provide that same kind of production. When you know, maybe I I haven't been super impressed with him yet, but just a little little rust maybe left to be brushed off. But you know. Another guy that can pitch in just about any spot, being a, a former and potentially future starter. We'll see what happens there. Yeah, I, I think your point is is still strong in that this is a bullpen that has a lot of options and it has a lot of weapons and they're all really convincingly strong. The question with Jordan Hicks, I think, is can he live up to the potential that's there because of the stuff that he has? And and where do you best fit him into that mix? Because you look at what he's capable of, you think closer. But if you look at what this team needs, it's not a guy who's going to walk at least one in just about every appearance that he throws. That's where it gets a little tricky. But uh, this team has a history of closers who <laughs> have a tendency to have high walk rates. So maybe that's just a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be fine if we... Uh, move away from that, but but Broke whatever. The but like I said, anyway, I'm not even. I don't even. I'd prefer him not be a closer anyway, and just pitch at the best time, I guess, whenever yeah. that might be. But one interesting thing is that lefties have actually hit Jordan Hicks really well in the last month or so. Not that that I expect that to be a trend that continues, but just you know, when he's struggling, the slider maybe isn't quite what it was in the month of April, and. uh We'll we'll see what happens there. It doesn't seem to me at this point like a reason to panic, but certainly something to keep an eye on as you watch this team that now is suddenly capable of winning close games, at least a couple of them in a series. Yeah. The guy who pitches the ninth is going to be more and more important. It actually had me thinking about Tony La Russa earlier when I was thinking about all of this. And th- this is kind of off the beaten path, but say La Russa hadn't retired after the 2011 season. Do you think the success he had in the postseason with the way he managed the bullpen would have had an impact on him going forward? Hmm. Like, was that like a kind of like an almost an, Oh my, Oh my gosh. Did you see that play? I Sorry. think I'm a little behind oh, you. Okay. Give me a sec. Keep talking. Then okay. I'll react. I thought Fowler <laughs> and Beta were going to uh, collide, but it turned out all good. Um, no, so I, I wonder if that was kind of like, not necessarily a light bulb moment, but kind of La Russa sort of seeing where baseball was headed. And that is kind of where baseball went, because starting with 2015, starters have thrown fewer innings than the year that preceded it. Um, I believe, I was looking at this earlier, starters in 2018 threw 3,000 fewer innings than starters in 2011. So it's a slow decline in starters innings pitch and a slow incline with relievers. Uh, Rob Maines of Baseball Prospectus is really good at kind of writing these sort of articles um, and the trends in 
starting pitchers and relief pitchers. And I'm just curious, um, like now, obviously, if you're La Russa, you can't manage a full 162-game season the way he was managing that postseason. <laughs> like, you just can't do that. You can do that in a postseason. You can't do that over the course of 162 games. But I do think, had he been come back for 2012, one, he had kind of stature in the game where he can tell anyone, like, no, you're done after four innings. I don't care who you are. And two, he... You know, he he was kind of an enigma in that he kind of had this reputation as being this stuck in the mud guy, but he was also like a, a total innovator. Yeah. Whether or not he gets he deserves all the credit, he certainly gets some of the credit for kind of the way we use our bullpens now, with the way he used Eckersley for that one inning save uh, with the A's and stuff like that. And I, I think he was a bit ahead of his time with the way he managed the bull his bullpen in 2011, even though like at times he seemed clearly almost to the point that we should like take the car keys away from him, like, you know, you know with the, uh, <laughs> the bullpen phone. Yeah. I'm curious if he had come back in 2012, if he had kind if he did kind of have this aha moment, like, you know, this is where baseball's heading. These relievers are all throwing super hard. You know, this is not like it was 10 years ago. I need to start using this more to my advantage. I think that one thing that would have happened is the <laughs> three batter minimum rule would have happened a long time ago. <laughs> Because uh, I think people would have gotten real tired of Tony Larusa using a one pitcher for one batter all the time. No, but I think it's an interesting point because it he did things that drove people crazy because they weren't what everyone else always did. But he also did. Th- he's kind of like he was kind of like Joe Madden before there was Joe Madden without quite so much craziness. I mean, he wasn't necessarily going to send a a reliever out into left field for an inning and then bring him back to the mound, like in softball, but I wouldn't put it past him to do something like that. I think he would absolutely do that. (laughs) If if, if there's one thing I regret, it's that we never had an overlap with Madden and La Russa. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would have been a lot of fun. Watching La Russa and Madden try to outdo each other in a Cubs Cardinal series would have been c- complete insanity. It, we would have seen things in baseball that you've never seen before and will probably never see again. That much I'm certain of. <laughs> Agree. Agree. But yeah, it is interesting. I think that a lot of people sort of take their cues from what works in the postseason and you know, we see that yeah. we see teams that kind of try to craft their strategy based on what happens in the postseason and what works and what doesn't. So that worked so well for a Tony LaRusso bullpen. I-, I say it worked so well that that series was so up and down that we can look at it now and say it worked well because it worked out. Well, if it had gone the other way, we might be saying it was a terrible thing. And well, Tony LaRusso's way never should have worked. Certainly but. in Milwaukee, um, if he doesn't, I, I firmly believe if he doesn't manage the bullpen like he did, I don't know if we win that series. Yeah, uh, I mean that. I mean, we look, we won it in six games, but the minute, oh no, I think, uh, oh, whew, all right, I'll let you see what's about to happen. Uh, <laughs> the the minute a starter looked like he got in trouble in that Milwaukee series, um, he took him out. I mean, yeah, I should have looked this up, but I feel like I remember one game where he was walking out there in the second inning to like yank Edwin Jackson or something, you know, and the bullpen was absolutely nails. I really think he would have kind of used that as a gauge going forward. And and you're absolutely right in what you said earlier uh, in that people maybe 
turn into the skid a little too much when it comes to uh, what works for a team in the postseason. Like, you know, when the Royals won the World Series 2015, and it seemed like uh, there was chatter that, like, okay, we need to have like a seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guy, right. shut down guys yeah. like the Royals have. I don't know if last year at the Red Sox one, if everyone was saying like, uh, hey, you know what? Maybe we should all have very, very good players everywhere. Uh, <laughs> certainly doesn't seem like Just it. have an entire yeah. team of all-stars. Yeah, it certainly doesn't <laughs> seem like it after uh, this past offseason when no yeah. one wanted to sign anyone. But but no, you're right. Th- that does have a heavy influence on on how teams act going forward. But yeah, I, I it's just another thing I appreciate about, appreciate about La Russa is that he really was ahead of his time or – Seemed that way, at least, with the way yeah. he, he managed that. Uh, I, you know, it, this is just another excuse excuse for us to talk about 2011, which we could Obviously. talk about all day. But Why wouldn't we yeah. do that? Speaking of, did you see, there was, uh, for everyone who's listening, I tweeted it out the other day, but there was a video done that was like a 2011 World Series Rewind, mm-hmm. and it was created off of the moment before David Freeze hit the home run in game six. But then it went back and dove into all of these little pieces of the history of that season and how it led up to that moment. And it was insane. Obviously there's so many moments in that season and in that series that you could go back to and think, wow, I can't believe that happened. But this was kind of a a quick snapshot of some of those moments and if you haven't seen it, I'll tweet it again because it was amazing. And if you want to just dwell on 2011 a little bit longer, <laughs> um, you should go watch it because it was amazing. Did you see it, Alex? Yeah, no, it was great. I, it, It's funny. It was, it was 15, 16 minutes long and they still couldn't fit in everything that should have been in there. Uh, right. Which is like, you know, they didn't mention the game against the Mets that they totally blew um, you know, in the last week and a half of the season where it looked like that was going to be their season. They didn't mention the Adron Chambers game uh, against the Cubs, uh, yeah. also known as the Marmel game. One thing they mentioned that I totally forgot is that when Josh Hamilton hit that two-run home run in the top of the 10th in game six, I forgot that Mott was still out there. I forgot that he didn't go with Arthur Rhodes to, to pitch to Hamilton. And man, it seems like that would have been considered a huge blunder, uh, especially following uh, the bullpen phone thing, which happened, yeah. happened right before. So yeah, LaRusse had already lost, even after all that, all that I said, LaRusse had already maybe lost a little off his fastball. Um, sorry, I don't know why I said, just said that. <laughs> That's a dumb, silly cliche. <laughs> LaRusse was maybe not as good as he had once been. LaRusse was no longer in his prime, let's say that. Uh, um, but yeah, they're just... You can't stress enough how many things had to happen for 2011 to end the way it did. I, I still, it almost seems like it, it still just boggles my mind that it even happened in the first place. It, even up to and including the maybe sketchy decision to call uh, to, to cancel game six and push it back a day because of it might yeah. rain. <laughs> um, I, I was there. I was at both game six and seven. So I was there the night game six was supposed to happen. Um, and it was an ugly day. It was windy and gray, and I believe it did rain. I, I'm trying to remember. We were kind of just bouncing around. But they certainly could have tried to probably play that game. And obviously that factored into Chris Carpenter getting, um, being able to pitch that game seven, which was probably pretty big. So who knows? Wild. Wild when you can go back and look at all of that. But uh, anyway, we're we're so far off of Jordan Hicks at this point that I could 
Create your own conclusion to how we got here. But the point is, the bullpen is still a bit of a work in progress, even as good as it has been. Um, and that's sort of where I started with all of this. I mean, the the process and the things that were a problem before the Cubs series might still kind of be a problem that we can at least keep an eye on to see how they rebound from the offense still not necessarily firing on all cylinders. We don't have time to dive into that tonight, but Alex, I don't know if you want to dive into the batting race conversation this nope. week. If not, <laughs> nope. then uh chirp of the week. That's where we are. Sure. Real quick. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago when I mentioned that ABC book I had and uh, I, I said Y is a uh, yacker for curveball and yep. Z was zigzagger for an errant throw. So I actually Googled both of those to see if this is really a thing or if they were just stretching. <laughs> and and yacker is definitely a term for a curveball, uh, although I have no idea why. It's not a very good word. It almost <laughs> sounds like a like a slur or something. I don't know. I don't, it's not. It's not a. It's not a fun word to say. Or there's so many better words for curveball than that one. But it is part of the baseball lexicon. Zigzagger, I'm firmly convinced, was completely made up. They I just could not come up with I, a Z word? Yeah, I could not find a single example <laughs> online. Maybe I didn't look too long, so maybe I, I will, should look again. But I couldn't find a single example online of anyone making a bad throw <laughs> and it being referred to as a zigzagger. But that is not this chirp of the week. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is, so after the Cardinals were swept in Wrigley about a month ago, I decided it was important to get back on the right track and talk about the Cardinals who had played over the course of their career very well at Wrigley. And I looked at players with at least 100, Cardinals with at least 100 plate appearances at Wrigley and then uh, sorted by highest OPS to lowest. Well, since the Cardinals just swept the Cubs, I thought I would do the same for the Cubs. Um, only it's not fun looking at Cubs who had uh, good OPSs um, in St. Louis. So I'm going to look at the ones who had bad OPSs there it is. in St. Louis. Um, now, unlike the Cubs, we've had three different stadiums for the most part uh, over the course of the Cardinals franchise. Uh, um, that would be, of course, Sportsman's Park, uh, then Bush, Bush Stadium, Bush Memorial Stadium, whatever you want to call it, and now the current Bush Stadium. So I'm going to start with Sportsman Park. Same criteria, looking at Cubs with at least 100 plate appearances at Sportsman Park, measuring by OPS, only those who had the worst OPS. And number one on the list at Sportsman Park was Don Johnson. Are you familiar with the Cubs player Don Johnson? I cannot say that I am. I, I was not either. <laughs> uh, he played for the team from 1944 to 1948, had 158 plate appearances at Sportsman's Park, and he had a 444 OPS. Now, he might have been one of these guys who only got a shot in the league because uh, a lot of players um, were overseas for World War II. I couldn't find out for sure, but this, these, this seemed to be the only time he really played in the league. But I don't know that for certain, so I certainly don't want to uh, slander him. Now, one cool thing about Don Johnson that has a connection to a current Cardinal is he was the last Cub to come to the plate in a World Series game until, do you know the answer? No. Dexter Fowler. <laughs> okay. Until Dexter Fowler in 2016. So I guess I take that to mean he made the very last out in yeah. the 1945 uh, World Series because as we know, the Cubs lost that series. So that's Sportsman's Park. Don Johnson, we thank you for your efforts of being bad uh, <laughs> while you played in St. Louis. Uh, moving on to Bush Memorial Stadium, and I'll count down the uh, – top five, uh, I guess, Hall of Shame, we can call it. Uh, 
Cubs with at least 100 plate appearances at at uh, Old Bush, who were also bad. Number five is Corey Patterson. Okay. Uh, 595 OPS. <laughs> that would be Corey Patterson, who won a ring with the 2011 uh, St. Louis Cardinals, yeah, mind you. Sure uh, did. <laughs> number four, and this surprised me, Moises Alou. Oh. Uh, I always feel like he mashed against us, but apparently that's not the case. Although if you look at the other end, you would not be surprised to see Aramis Ramirez there. Um, <laughs> that was true. He did hit the ball very well against us. But yeah, number four is Moises Alou, 576 OPS. Uh, number three, Randy Hunley, 529 OPS. Number two, Jody Davis, the old catcher, uh, 495 OPS. And number one, Manny Trio in 184 plate appearances had four had a 472 OPS at Old Bush. So now let's look at the current stadium. Number five is Alfonso Soriano with a 662 <laughs> OPS. Okay. Number four is Jason Hayward, oh. 655 OPS. Number three, this is fun, Chris Bryant. Ah. 654. I, I feel like, am I supposed to boo? Is that what should happen? Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think we can do it. Um, number two, Darwin Barney with a uh, 569 okay. OPS. And uh, number one, who I guess we should be thankful uh, that he was bad during these years, from 2007 to, until 2009 with 116 plate appearances, Ryan Terrio had a 524 <laughs> OPS plus. No, I'm sorry. O, not OPS plus, just a regular OPS. 524 oh. OPS at Bush Stadium. Of course, he went on to play for the Cardinals as well, but perhaps he contributed more when he, <laughs> he <laughs> to the Cardinals when he was with the Cubs because he did not do well when he played in St. Louis. That is your trip of the week. There you go. If you need a little more to enjoy about the rivalry after this weekend, you can just revel in some of the failures of Cubs players over the years. Uh, All right. Thanks, Alex. We have uh, spent more than the time we had planned because there was so much to get to over the the weekend that was with the Cubs and the Cardinals. And hopefully more of that continues and we can have more interesting things to talk about next week as the Cardinals continue their march through the month of June. If this continues to be a thing, I'm just going to boycott May next year and see what happens. But we'll talk about that when we get there. You can follow Alex at AlexCard79. I'm at Tara Wellman on Twitter. Subscribe and follow and like and whatever it is that you do to the Birds on the Black podcast feed on your preferred podcast service. And feel free to dive into this conversation with us throughout the week on Twitter. We'll be back with you next week. Look forward to talking to you all then.